And if you would please take out your copies of God's Word with me as we turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And as you're turning there, may I take this occasion to say thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to be back uh, from vacation last week. It's good to see you all here again. It's like uh, being, being back, with, back with family. I do want to extend thanks in case he's listening uh, to Westby Anderson for preaching in my stead. I understand he did a great job and are thankful to uh, the elders for granting me uh, the leave uh, to to, uh, write. I've got a Christmas devotional prepared and we'll hopefully be able to uh, get that to you all and hopefully will be a blessing to you. So it's wonderful to be back. And for now, we turn to Luke chapter 20. We're going to be reading in verses 1 through 18 today, a large chunk of scripture, but I think it will be be of benefit to you. So listen carefully, because these are the words of Christ for you. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it? That gave you this authority. He answered them. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying. If we say from heaven. He will say why did you not believe him? But if we say from man. All the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Then the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask God's blessing and guidance on our 
message today. Oh, Father, I ask that you would help me to preach these words well. Help us to listen carefully to what you have to say, that we may follow after you ever more closely as our King. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a very complicated relationship with authority. On the one level, we don't like when people tell us what we should do or when people have governance over our lives, except when they are telling us something to do, something we are already planning to do anyway. Then we love authority. We love getting to appeal to others and say, well, I'm just doing what this person has told me to do. This is a wonderful insurance policy because if it goes wrong, then at least you can blame the person who is in authority over you. Unfortunately, we want to have authority of one without the other. We don't like being told what it is to do with our lives unless we were already planning to do it. And when we look at our world today, we wish that someone would just come along and fix what's wrong, get rid of the things that we don't like, and put in the things that we do like. We can see this drama unfold every four years in our own country, being thrilled and disgusted with authority back and forth. But what we have today is the announcement that there is someone who is in charge. That there is someone who rules over all things and is one day going to remove all things evil. But unfortunately, if he's going to remove all things evil, there's some dealings that we have to work with, don't we? There is a part that we play in why the world is the way that it is, and we can resist it. Jesus tells us what to do with our lives, but there's a sense in which we just would rather not. Some of those commands are a lot harder to deal with than others. Loving your neighbors is great as long as it's our friends. When our neighbor happens to be our enemy, it gets a lot harder. But what I hope to show us today out of this passage, as we look at Jesus' authority, we're going to see two points which I have for you in your outline. One is that challenges to Jesus' authority will not stand. Challenges to Jesus' authority will not stand. And secondly, challengers to Jesus' authority will be destroyed. Challengers to Jesus' authority will be destroyed. We're at a turning point here in this book of Luke. We saw in chapter 19 of who Jesus is and one of the roles that he fulfills, and that is king. When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, gentle and lowly, All the people around him said that this is the Messiah. And when the Pharisees told Jesus to tell them to stop, he said, no, they're telling the truth. And in fact, if they were to stop, the rocks themselves would cry out that their king is walking into Jerusalem. And one of the first things that he did when he walked into Jerusalem was reform worship. Here, the area of the temple that was set aside for the nations to come and to pray The people, the religious leaders at the time had filled with loud and smelly animals that they were to upcharge and sell to worshipers at a profit. They were respecting neither the worship of God nor the evangelism of the nations. And Jesus reformed that in quite a direct way. 
got out his whip and overturned his tables and made quite a scene. So we see Jesus is a king. Jesus has authority. But now chapter 20. Why does he have that authority? Who does he get it from? It's easy for us as we look at this chapter to say, well, of course, Jesus has authority because he's God. We all know this. Fabulous. End of sermon, right? No. We do know this, that Jesus is king. But we don't act like we believe it all the time, do we? We have something to learn from the reactions to this. From these Pharisees, these chief priests and scribes and elders of the town. We have something to learn by how they have tried to test the authority of Christ. So let's see how he does this or how they do this. Starting in verse 1. So again, Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him. And they said, tell us. By what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Here it is that the chief priests and elders are asking Jesus what appears at the surface to be a rather needed question. Jesus has caused a bit of a stir lately. We want to know why. Who is it that is given us this thing? Put it in modern terms, who died and made you king? is what these chief priests and scribes are asking. And it seems like at first, in verse 3, is Jesus dodging their question here. Well, let me answer that by asking you this. Is he trying some sort of political speech move and try to get around what's happening? No. What Jesus is doing is he has recognized what the chief priests and the scribes are trying to do. They're not really interested in answering this question. We'll see how we know that in just a minute. What they're trying to do is they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to say, well, God is the one that has given me this authority because I'm the Messiah. If they were to hear him say that, then they could try to drag him away and kill him for blasphemy. That's their angle. And Jesus sees this. Jesus is also in control of this whole thing. It's not yet his time. Jesus has more things to do. He has to set up the Lord's Supper on Thursday evening. There's more on Jesus' agenda. So he's going to sovereignly move through this and traps them in their own question. In verse 3, he says, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This is a phenomenal move on Jesus' part. If this was a debate club, the announcers on this would be going wild at this moment. Because Jesus, if you can have wild announcements at a debate club, but you can see what kind of world I grew up in. But, uh, but by asking them this question, Jesus is forcing them to answer their own question. If we remember... John the Baptist and his ministry all the way back in Luke chapter 3. What is it that John is doing? He was preparing people for the kingdom that was to come. And who does, what does he say when he sees Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's pretty clear and straightforward, isn't it? That wasn't enough. The heavens opened up and God said, this is my beloved son. 
in whom I am well pleased. This didn't happen last week. It's been three years since this occasion happened. This was at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Surely the chief priests and the scribes have had their times to form their committee meeting and write out their report. They should know what they think about the baptism of John by now. And if they've made a decision about John, if they say, no, this really was a prophet from God, then what he said about Jesus should be pretty evident, isn't it? And if John's not a prophet, then what he said about Jesus doesn't matter. Just another guy with an opinion. This is a brilliant move. They should know the answer to this. And the answer to this question will determine the answer to their question that they have for Jesus. But note how they try to deal with it themselves. Jesus answers them this question. They all get their panic face and they quick turn around and huddle up and try to figure out how they're going to answer this question. Luke brings us into this huddle as we hear what it is that they're saying. One of the commentators I read, Leon Morris, puts it very well. He says that they, the scribes and the Pharisees, they concentrate on the effects, not the truth of their possible answers. They want to know what's going to be the result if we say this. Not what is true. What's going to happen to us if we say this? If we say he's God, then he's got us. And we need to worship him. And then the answer is, how dare you ask me about that? And they're immediately humbled. But if we say what we really think, that John the Baptist wasn't actually a prophet, notice how they say that. The people, they are convinced that John's a prophet. They're not convinced that John's a prophet. They're concerned they'll get stoned to death and they'll they'll be killed. They don't fear God. They fear people. This is people-pleasing at its worst. And so, without any sort of answer to this, they go with their non-committal answer of, well, we just don't know. Had three years to think about it. But they still haven't made up their mind. And in verse 8, Jesus says to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is under no obligation to answer bad faith questions. He's the king. He doesn't have time for that. But yet he's going to answer the question anyway. And that's what we see here in this parable. As we look into our second point, that challengers to Jesus' authority will be destroyed. We saw first that Challenges against Jesus' authority will not stand. Try to make the point that maybe he shouldn't be doing what he's doing, but he has clearly defeated them. But now we're going to move on, and he's going to tell a story. He's going to tell a parable about what it is that he is going to do and how he gets this authority ultimately. It says that he begins to tell the people a parable about a man who plants a vineyard and lends it out to someone else. This was a relatively common practice at the time. To put it in a modern day, it would be like owning a franchised restaurant. You own the restaurant, you get the profits from that restaurant, but you leave it to others to manage. And that's what he's done here. He's planted a vineyard, he's gone off, he's lent this out to other farmers who are supposed to take care of this vineyard for him. And when the time comes, he's to send a servant there to collect of the fruits of his labor and bring it back to him. 
But of course, as we see, when he sends the servants, the farmers turn on him. And they beat each one of the servants that comes by. And it's not hard to figure out what it is that Jesus is saying. The picture of a vineyard was something that was pictured all the way back in Isaiah chapter 5. References Israel as a vineyard that they have planted. So this image of sending servants to a vineyard that they keep getting mistreated, it doesn't take much of an imagination to see this is talking about God sending prophets again and again to a rebellious Israel. Unfortunately, there's a long history of them mistreating prophets, sawing them in half, throwing them down wells, throwing them in prison, having them flee for their lives. This has been a long story, very complicated history of Israel and authority. And then the vineyard owner says, well, what shall I do? Well, I'll send my son. Perhaps they'll respect my son. And then in verse 14, they said, this is the heir. Let's kill him. Now, to understand the logic of what these farmers are trying to do is the thought would have been at the time that the owner who had planted this thing originally and went a long ways away had probably died because here's his son coming. And the thought was, well, he's coming to take ownership of his land, take over what his father had started. And the practice at the time when it comes to property rights is whoever was using the property the longest was the one who inherited it. So if you could just get rid of any other legitimate claim to this property, then you could own it for yourself. And that's what these farmers were thinking. Well, if we kill the heir, then we get to own this thing all to ourselves. We don't have to deal with him anymore. And that's precisely what they do. They throw him out of the vineyard and then kill him. In verse 16, Jesus asks, or verse 15, asks them, what will the owner of the vineyard do? It says that he will come, destroy those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. When the crowd hears this, they all say, surely not. The words that are used there, this is one of the strongest ways to express no in their language. God forbid that this would happen. That others would be given to, that others would have this vineyard. Here we can see more of what Jesus is doing. The vineyard doesn't necessarily represent just Israel itself, but the promises that were given to them. God has made an exclusive, up to this point, an exclusive covenant with Israel. Out of all the other nations he could have chosen, he picked Israel to have a covenant with. They rebelled against this time and time and time again. Not something God was surprised by, but something that has happened. And here, this is one of these early hints that this promise is going to be opened up to others, to the Gentiles, others brought in to this covenant. The people are understanding what's happening here. And they say, no way. No way we're going to lose our exclusive spot. And then Jesus responds, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is actually in reference to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 22 specifically. In this 
original psalm is referencing a stone that had been originally rejected. This references a likely story at the time when they were building the temple that they would um, hew out all the stones off-site and bring them in. And they had brought in this one particular stone that they thought was going to fit in one spot, but that wasn't ended up what it was going to be. So the builders rejected it and set it to the side. But later on, they found out that this was actually the correct stone to be used for the cornerstone for the temple. Originally, a stone the builders had rejected was now used as the cornerstone. Now, what's a cornerstone? This would be the place that would basically determine how the rest of the building was to be laid out. It's the most important stone in the construction. It would sit at one corner of the building that would determine how the other two, those two walls sat, which would basically govern how the rest of the building was done. And in Psalm 118, they take that story that they knew of and applied it at that time to Israel. Israel was a country that no one thought much of. They were a nation of slaves to Egypt, is how they got started. And yet the ones that everyone thought that they were no better than slaves, God had brought and exalted them to be in his covenant with the goal that they would show what a people of God looks like and draw all nations to themselves so that they could point it to God. That was their point. But now Israel is repeating the same mistake that others did to them. They're looking at Jesus and they're saying, this is no cornerstone. This isn't someone we're going to build our lives on. We're going to cast it to the side. But Jesus is going to not be rejected ultimately. Israel might reject him, but God won't. And is going to build his church all on Christ. And this is going to be the chief cornerstone for us. Then verse 18 comes. It says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We all have to reckon with this stone. Our tendency, even today still, is to reject Jesus. It's our knee-jerk reaction as fallen human beings. And here we're called to make the same evaluation. Who is Jesus and what does he mean to me? It's not a determination where we get to decide who he is. The determination is whether or not we're going to submit to this stone. Whether or not we're going to bow to our master. And the stakes are high. This is not going to be, well, if you decide not to do this one, you can just come to this one. No, there is no other option. If you reject the stone, you'll trip over it and be destroyed. Or as it says here, that if anyone, uh, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The idea is being destroyed to bits. I was talking with Eddie this week. He was giving me some insight as to how things work at our marble quarry just down the road. The stones that can be brought out of this thing can be as large as the Lincoln Memorial, which is actually made of silicaga stone. Or it can be ground as fine to bits as to be dusted on chewing gum so it doesn't stick to the package. Did you know what that was? I didn't know that. There's rocks in your chewing gum. But they're 
ground together so finely you didn't even know that. That's the picture. When we resist Christ, there is no resistance that stands. It'll be ground to powder such that you didn't even know there was resistance there. It's just gone. Now you may say, now, but what about all these people that are resisting Jesus? Aren't there whole governments that are set up about this? What about the Chinese government? They don't seem to be crushed to bits at the moment. Or North Korea. Or the Taliban. Or any other number of people that we could mention. Why are these people allowed to stand? Why are these people not being ground to dust? And the answer is not yet. Because God is patient. Look at how many servants this vineyard owner sent. I'd be done after the first one. Are you going to beat my servant? Well, guess what's happening to you? That's not God. How many prophets over how many hundreds of years did he send to the Israelites? Repent, turn to me. And I'll turn back this judgment that's coming. He'd even give them warnings. Here's the judgment that's coming. But if you will repent and turn, I won't do it in your lifetime. Even people like Ahab, one of the most sinful kings in Israel, he repents and God turns. His default is mercy. Even to the point when he sends his son. Philip, uh, Pastor Philip Ryken, whom I quote often here in his commentary, has this to say about the nature of God and how this parable fits into it. It says, if we were to ask the father, don't you know what they're going to do to your beloved son? He would answer by saying, yes, I know what they will do to my beloved son. But don't you know that's the reason why I sent him into this world? That's God. This is obviously, of course, a parable of what's going to happen to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God who's coming to Israel and to the world to say, Come. Let me bear your burdens, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But of course, they're going to kill him regardless. So we see in verse 19 that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that they had told this parable against him, but they feared the people. The only thing holding them back is their own fear of the people. They would have killed him right then if they could. Fulfilling the very parable. Not listening to, were they listening to Jesus at all? Not paying attention. But that's what Jesus came to do. Even when he's telling his enemies what's going to happen to them if they do this, they're going to do it anyway. Behold the sovereignty of God. And the love of God. 
Jesus could have, as the rock, as the king, as the judge, could have crushed them right then and there. But he doesn't. And that same love is working today. Those in the halls of power that are torturing and persecuting Christians, who are bringing about massive evil all across this world, are not being ground to powder yet. Christ is giving them time that they might hear and repent. Because we've seen that even in Israel's cases. Even their most evil of kings would come around. Manasseh, who is, we can, near as we can tell, one of the last kings... He, according to tradition, had Isaiah sawn in half. But he later came to Christ, or came to God as he knew him in the Old Testament. He gives us time. He's giving you time, too. If you've not come to Christ yet, there is still the very real threat of judgment coming. There's a stone over your head, and it will fall. But it hasn't yet because he loves you and wants to save you and will if you will come to him and repent. Don't be like the Pharisees or the chief priests and the scribes in this case to quote Riken again. Don't be too proud to admit that they had made a mistake and too people pleasing to take a stand for what you believe. Will you submit to Christ? To resist is not going to work. Seen that already. We're not going to come up with, a, with facts and logic that's going to get around Christ. You're not going to be able to resist the rock of which all the rest of the universe is built on. But instead... You can build your house on that rock. You can build your life on this and it will be secure. Not that all things will be safe. Not that all things will be good all the time. But salvation can be absolutely secured. Because Christ has authority over all things. He's God. That's what we see in this passage. And as we go on, and really throughout the rest of the book, we're going to see all these other areas that he has authority over and how it gets very specific, uncomfortably specific sometimes. But it's the fact that he loves you. So, what can you take away from this? If you're in Christ and you're worried about the state of the world, because there's a lot to be worried about, keep this passage in mind. Christ is still on the throne. Everything is already sorted. It's just a matter of us experiencing it yet. Things are fully in control. We're just going to wait and see how it plays out. I remember there was a story of a pickpocketer in an airport. He was very good at his job, except for one. He stole a wallet off of someone and had gotten a generous running head start down the airport. Unfortunately, the man that, or unfortunately for him, the man whose wallet he had stolen from was a U.S. Olympic sprinter. 
And despite a very generous head start, as soon as the sprinter realized who and where his wallet was, it was over. It was only a matter of him sprinting down that hallway very quickly, probably 10 seconds, and grabbed and retrieved his wallet back. That's where we are in redemptive history. It's already done. Christ already is on the throne. He already sees this world. And it's just a matter of his restoring it. And all we get to do now is wait and look on and cheer as he chases down all that's wrong with this world. And we'll fix it. There's no stopping that. But if you're not in Christ today, you're in the sights of the sprinter. So repent, turn, and run with him. No, you can't run as fast as he can. But he'll let you tag along. He'll carry you, in fact. He's that fast and strong. And will bring us to a world in which all will be set right. Our sins can be forgiven, even today. You can submit to this king. He's the king anyway. And he will love you for all the days of your life. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this passage that we have in front of us. I pray that you would help us to trust you. To trust that even though the pickpocket has made a lot of progress. He's not gotten out of reach for you. And I pray that for those that are here, for those that are in Christ, that they would take comfort in the fact that you are in control. Nothing happens without your knowledge. And Lord, for those that are not in Christ, I pray that they would come to you. A king who is in charge, but a king who is gracious. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.